So 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 9. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like me humans? Or when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not me human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And the second passage we're reading is Psalm, Psalm 119, 41 to 48. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I've sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. Well, uh, what kind of shoes does your pastor wear? Famous Instagram account I looked into recently called Preachers and Sneakers. A guy called Ben Kirby started posting pictures of famous church leaders and identified their shoes. Now, I had no idea how uh, much sneakers could cost, but uh, he identified shoes like the Jordan Retro Ones, the Air Yeezy Twos, and the Retro High Dior's. Only $8,000 for those. <laughs> if you're interested and want to know what shoes I'm wearing, look, I'm, I'm wearing my nice preaching shoes today. I think I got these for about $70 on our last, last holiday. Uh, but those shoes look a lot more comfortable. Now, the Instagram p- account picked up lots of followers and created all kinds of controversy. Uh, ben Kirby himself is a regular Christian. He said, I want, to, want people to know my heart is pure behind this. He said, I'm not trying to cause division or anger or distaste about the church or Christianity, but I have enjoyed the conversation surrounding this, and that's been fulfilling for me. Now, it's easy to laugh at these photos, but I think it raises the question, what are we looking for in our pastors? You know, at HBC, we're probably not looking for our pastors to be leaders in the fashion world, uh, although I'd be happy to give it a go, but uh, (laughs) what are we looking for in our pastors? What are our pastors supposed to be? Now, I thought of three options that could be a little bit more relevant in our circles, all beginning with E. Experts, executives, and entertainers. 
So experts, do we want our pastors to be experts in all things? All things spiritual, knowing everything about the Bible and theology and history and insightful into culture and where things are heading and able to answer every question, uh, able to respond elegantly to every challenge from the world, maybe have their own podcast or blog, writing books, the expert. Or do we want our pastors to be executives, highly organized and professional, capable of putting out excellent vision statements and mission statements, running the organization efficiently and smoothly? Or do we want our pastors to be entertainers, capable of putting on a good show each week, doing a talk that's funny, interesting and inspirational, something that can actually compete with the entertainment that is tempting us on our phones right now, the Facebook, the Instagram or live traffic New South Wales? Whatever entertainment might be distracting you, the expert, executive, and entertainer. Now, there's something good about all those things. We do want pastors who know the Bible and theology really well and can think about culture. We do want pastors to lead well and be organized, and we want pastors who can hold our attention in preaching. But that's not quite it, is it? There must be something more. Well, in this passage here in 1 Corinthians, we're going to look at who our church leaders are supposed to be, and what that means for us as regular Christians here at church. Now, just to fill you in, if you're visiting today, we're looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, and we've seen that Corinth was a church incredibly gifted in knowledge and speaking abilities, according to uh, chapter 1, verse 5, but they were divided as a church over which leader they aligned with. According to chapter 1, there were quarrels, and Paul says in verse 12, what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Some were following Paul and, and Apollos and so on. And in Paul's opinion, this is a real problem. And so he has spent chapters 1 and 2 showing why it's wrong. In chapter 1, he explained how the whole, the message of Christ crucified overturns the standard leadership categories that would lead to divisive leader loyalty. As he says, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He's saying impressive leaders didn't launch our relationship with God. No, no. Our relationship with God was launched by the message of a Messiah nailed to the cross. A message of weakness. And so that message of weakness in the eyes of the world must be what drives it on. We can't move away from that. And then in chapter 2, Paul explained how true knowledge of God doesn't come from impressive leaders, but from the Holy Spirit. Spiritual words carry the message and the Spirit equips us to understand. So what we must prioritize is humble obedience to the Word, not the exaltation of powerful leaders. So Paul now circles back in chapter 3 to this problem of a church divided over Christian leaders. So let's look at that now and learn how we need to think about our church leaders. What we see, first of all, is that the, the Corinthians, by dividing over leaders, are not being clever, they're just being immature. Look at verses 1 and 2 of uh, chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not re yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So Paul is saying he would have really liked to have spoken to them and written about their, to them as spiritual people. He would have liked to have taught the cross more deeply and pushed ahead into other doctrine. However, they're still worldly. 
Yes, they believe the gospel, they have the spirit, but they're still living like the rest of the world. And the illustration he uses here is of a newborn baby who isn't ready for solids. When Alex, our oldest son, was a baby, all he needed was milk. He was a hungry guy. When he wanted milk, the whole house knew about it. When the time came for him to start on solids, I remember how seriously I took it. I wasn't just going to, I was committed to developing his palate. I wasn't just going to mash up some pumpkin or mash up some pear. I would add a little hint of rosemary to the pumpkin. Uh, or just a little sprinkle of cinnamon in the pear. I wanted to develop his palate. I was a gourmet when I was mashing these. Andy, our second kid, poor thing, I can't even remember. <laughs> he probably got just whatever he could scrape out of last night's dinner. That's how it goes. But he did fine anyway. But either way, once they got the solid food, they really kicked on in their growth. They got big and... Uh, Incidentally, once thing you should know this, once things change going in, they also change coming out. This gets very interesting there. But Paul is saying that the, the Corinthians, despite all their knowledge and all their teaching ability, speaking ability, they're basically babies. They're not ready for anything more than gospel basics delivered in a really simple way. And of course, the gospel basics are great and we never move on from the message of the cross, but they were just not ready for anything more. And so to consider for ourselves for a moment, is, this is showing us that it's possible for us to be adults, yet remain baby Christians. It's possible to have just the same knowledge of the Bible and Christian doctrine as we did in our first year of believing. It's possible to remain more or less the same people we were at the start of our Christian walk. Now, that's not a positive thing. You know, just like we love babies, but we're glad when they grow, we've got to grow from spiritual infancy into adulthood. It's normal and good to learn more each year and repent of old sins and take on new Christian virtues, always under grace, not works, but changing and growing. So, how might you grow this year? In our world, in our church, uh, in the Christian community, there are so many resources to help us grow, so many great books or talks or uh, podcast or whatever it might be. There's opportunities to partner with your growth group friends to, on some kind of change project. Why not look to be growing as a Christian this year, moving from babyhood into adulthood? That would be great. But coming back to the Corinthians, we can see in the next verses that their problem wasn't really a lack of knowledge, it was jealousy and quarrelling. Have a look in verse 3. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? See, the reason that Paul thought they were still worldly, still being like every other person or group in the world, is that there was jealousy and quarrelling. People were, were aligning themselves either with Paul or Apollos. They were getting jealous about the success of other factions compared to theirs. And Paul's saying, look, this is just all worldly. This is how the rest of the world behaves. And is that not true from your experience as well in the world? Don't you find that division is just so common, so common that it's basically normal? I heard of a small business in Newcastle that has two Christmas parties because the people don't get along. I heard that there's at least one junior sport in Newcastle where there are two parallel competitions because of a split in the organisation a few years ago. In our schools, there are all kinds of groups and cliques. In politics, 
The different sides are as fixed as host and hostile as ever. There's left and right, Democrat and Republican, Labor and Liberal. On Facebook and Twitter, people go crazy with rage as they line up behind different views and positions. We have a divided world. That's normal. That's human. That's worldly. One of the ways that Christians can stand out in the world is by our lack of division and our lack of jealousy and quarrelling. See, if people come to church and figure out where the divisions are and are like, All right, okay, this is happening over here and these people are lining behind this leader, it's familiar to them. It's familiar. They've realised, oh, church, it's just like the workplace or the school or the bowling club. It's just another human organisation. But if there is none of that, visitors really notice. It's incredibly powerful at church or at youth group that nobody is trying on power players and people are getting along. Labor voters can sit next, sit next to liberal voters. Jocks can be friends with nerds. Vegan Whole Foods people can hang out with trail bikers. Where else would that happen in this world? And so visitors and, and people who are not yet Christian realize that something different is happening here, something beautiful, something spiritual even, and they want this unity and harmony for themselves. Now, thankfully, I think this is something we have here at Hunter Bible Church. By God's grace, we haven't been through big divisions and our elders and staff are unified, our congregations are on the same page, nobody's lining up behind dynamic leaders. Our diverse congregations genuinely love each other and I praise God for that. And I think people do notice as they come along and they want to find out more about Jesus and they want to join us and that's great. But this passage warns us not to be complacent. It does warn us to avoid divisive leader loyalty and even be wary of something as simple as jealousy. Beware of jealousy that you know, one leader seems to have more success than you, or that your, um, your air quotes, favourite pastor seems to be less influential than you would like. This is all very dangerous territory. In fact, according to the book of Galatians, jealousy, dissensions and factions are acts of the flesh, things that belong to our old, our, our old lives. And so we need to be del uh, diligent in getting rid of them. Uh, let me just give you two practical things that I will think will help maintain and promote spiritual unity here at church. Uh, firstly, just be excited for whoever stands up to preach on Sunday. We all have preachers we find easier to listen to than others, uh, but just be excited for whoever stands up to talk. Commit to learning and getting the most out of the talk. Some churches, as they get larger, apparently have to keep secret which preacher is preaching where on a Sunday, because people will go to that shift over to that congregation to catch their favourite preacher. Hard to believe, but it's true. So may that never be the case here. Just be keen for whoever stands up to preach. And secondly, a practical tip again is, I would recommend just get some variety into who you read and listen to during the week. You know, there's lots of great Christian leaders out there with fantastic books and podcasts and Facebook pages and so on, but there's really good stuff there. But, and if you know me, I'm always reading something and listening to something. Um, I love it all, but uh, just be careful that uh, you're not becoming a, a particularly devoted fanboy or fangirl of just one or two certain voices. You know, we can become super loyal to this person. We listen to every cast, we read every book, and we think they have all the answers. And there's a danger we can just start to feel superior to other people at church who haven't yet discovered um, our guy or girl, and we, who don't know what we know. And we can start to kind of win people over to our guy. That's all a little bit dangerous and has the potential for division. So try not to be a, just a one-person fanboy or fangirl, 
listen to various people and listen to people from different Christian circles, uh, listen to people who disagree, uh, allow yourself to miss an episode from your favourite people or fall behind on the reading, that's all fine. And don't, certainly don't worry about winning people to your favourite person. There's just some practical ways that we can stay well clear of divisive leader loyalty. So now we come back to what leaders really are. Looking at 1 Corinthians, what are our leaders, our preachers and sneakers? Are they experts, executives or entertainers? Well, Paul actually spends two chapters answering this question. There's a lot more to come in the coming weeks, but for our section today, the answer is pretty simple. Christian leaders are basically farmers. Just have a look in verses 5 to 9. He says, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul asked the question, what is Apollos? What is Paul? Well, just servants. Just people who plant seed and water it according to what God wants. And this uh, fits with what actually happened in Corinth. In Acts 18, Paul came and evangelized the church into existence. He planted the seed of God's Word and the church began. And then later in Acts 18, in a different location across the sea in Ephesus, we meet Apollos and we learn how he contributed to the church in Corinth. And that's worth reading. Um, It'll be on the screen. Uh, For your information, Achaia, in this reading, is the name of the Roman province that Corinth was sitting in. And uh, from 18 verse 24, it says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. See, here we can see Apollos' work of watering the seed that Paul had planted. He knew the Bible well, he was a good teacher, and he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Paul and Apollos are basically farmers, or perhaps not even farmers, just labourers in the field. And by using this illustration, Paul is making several points, and I'm going to draw out five here. Firstly, Christian leaders are nothing special. They're not experts, executives or entertainers, they're farm labourers. In verse 7, Paul says that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, nothing special. I think we could actually go to the Hunter Bible Church website, to the place that says who we are, and then click on that, the pastoral team, you could delete all the glamour shots, especially mine, and just write a bunch of nobodies. (laughs) That's, That's the pastoral team, bunch of nobodies. That would be true. There's no reason to turn our Christian leaders into heroes. I love it when you guys remember the teaching points from Sunday, but forget who is preaching. Has that ever happened to you? You're so caught up in the goodness of God's Word and, and what He's saying that you just wonder, well, was it Greg who said that? Or was it Sam? Or was it Scott? I can't really remember. That's how it should be. 
Christian leaders are nothing special. The second point from this farm illustration in verse 7 is that uh, Paul says that Christian leaders have one purpose, or as the ESV puts it, they are one. Christian leaders are united. They have the same supervisor, that's God. They have the same purpose, a harvest. Uh, It doesn't matter if one waters and the other plants, they're on the same team, they are fundamentally united. And therefore, if there's unity in the ministry, so there should be unity in the church. And I think one of the reasons our church has been united over the years is that our staff team has been united. There's a connection there. Thirdly, the farm illustration shows that there is a reward for Christian leaders. See in verse 8, they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. We don't talk about this much, uh, but there are rewards from God for faithful ministry. Probably not something as crude as a bigger house in heaven, Uh, or unlimited KFC or anything like that, that'd be nice. It's probably just the reward of our Father's praise and the reward of seeing people become Christians and the reward of seeing people grow as Christians and persevere until death. That's a much more meaningful reward. And so I'd like to encourage you, for the sake of your reward, to persevere in your ministry. It doesn't matter if you're paid or not in this one. Persevere. And I'd encourage you to expand and extend your ministry, if at all possible. There's not much traditional earthly compensation for ministry. There's not much of a compensation package. There's not much in the way of glamour or wealth. It's a whole lot of hard work. But there is the joy of seeing people change and grow. And there's a promise of a reward at the end. And Paul takes this reward very seriously. So I would ask you would, you, would you let God's promise of reward encourage you in ministry? Fourthly, the farm illustration shows us that the task of ministry is primarily the teaching of the Word of God. Both Paul and Apollos brought the Word of God into the lives of the Corinthians, and they were relational, they served, they were holistic, but at the end of the day, they taught the Bible. They were servants through whom the Corinthians came to believe. They taught the Word of God. And so, in regard to our three earthly options for leaders, um, Paul and Apollos were knowledgeable, but they weren't set up as experts. They were organised, but they weren't executives. They were interesting, but they weren't entertaining. They were primarily Bible teachers. And this really should be what we're looking for in our Christian leaders. Have they taught me the Bible? Are they bringing the Word of God into my life? Are they helping me love God's Word more and apply God's Word more? And thankfully, I think we are blessed at this church in this way. Our staff do lots of different things, and many of them are great experts and organisers and leaders and so on. They are easy to listen to, but more than all that, as a team, teaching the Bible is at the heart of what we do. At every event, every team meeting, every ministry, even the upcoming building campaign, we are seeking to bring the Bible into everyone's lives. And I'm thankful for that. That's how it should be. One practical thing I can mention, look, if you would like to encourage us as pastors, especially our preachers, I try not to say after church, that was a great talk. I mean, you can say that, especially to me, that's fine, but... What would be much better and more encouraging would be to say something like, thank you for that talk, I particularly loved thinking about how Jesus died for our sins, or how verse 11 teaches us to pray, or whatever that might be. Let the preacher know that you learnt from the Bible and were challenged and encouraged by the Bible at that time, and that is so much more encouraging to our preachers. 
And fifthly, this is the last point, perhaps the most important point, that is that Paul uses this illustration of the farm to show that God gives the growth. Verse 6 says it clearly, God has been making it grow. Or verse 7, God who makes things grow. Now, the planter and the water contribute to the agricultural work, but it is God, the great and powerful God, sovereign over everything, who actually makes things grow. People evangelize and teach the Bible, but it is God who brings people to faith and to mature Christian discipleship. God is sovereign over who will believe or not believe the Word of God. God is sovereign over who will grow in ministry and who will stagnate or backslide. God gives the growth. And this means so many things. Uh, four subpoints. Sorry, everyone, more points. F- firstly, growth is good. Growth is good. Farmers want a big crop, not a small one. And growth is good. It is good when people become Christians. It's good when babies are born here at church. It's good when the kids' ministry is overflowing. It's good when people join church. It's good when our growth groups fill up. It is good when we outgrow our buildings. Are you ever tempted to get annoyed with the growth that comes from ministry? Do you ever think, well, everything was fine, and then there were too many people? There's more people than I can know. I feel uncomfortable. It's getting difficult. Do you ever find growth a problem? There's an episode of an old TV show called Yes, Minister, um, where one of the bureaucrats sets up a really well-run hospital. It's got staff, it's got ground maintenance, it's got systems and policies. It's a really excellent hospital, but just no patients. Patients would ruin the whole thing. The The bureaucrats did not want them there. Uh, the, the hospital's running much better without the patients. And sometimes we can be like that with church. Church is running great, just no people, or at least less people would be good. But that's not Bible teaching. We are God's field, so we've got to learn to love growth just like a farmer loves a big crop. Secondly, on this one, we praise God for growth when it happens. When people believe, or when people become more mature, or when our church grows in numbers, that's a time to praise God. Now, we can encourage our leaders and be thankful and generous, but ultimately, we give all praise to God for what He does. Thirdly, we pray to God for growth. When it, uh, we pray to God for growth. There's no point praying to our Christian leaders. They don't have the power. No point praying to them. Instead, we pray to God for the growth. And I try to put this into practice just in a simple way. Every day, I pray that our church would grow in number. My prayer for New EAM is that we would have 180 people in growth groups. I mean, that's a modest prayer in some way, but it's, a, it's something we're hoping, we're hoping we'll reach in the next year or two. I just pray this every day, that, and also pray that our church would grow in maturity. Is that part of your prayer life as well? I would love for it to be. Prayer is effective, I really believe that. And it also expresses our dependence on God who gives the growth. And fourthly, we can be confident in ministry. Conversion and growth doesn't happen through our inspirational leadership and ministry skills, it comes through God. So we can spare ourselves the anxiety of having to make things happen. We can be confident, not in ourselves, but in God. Now, I'm responsible for the Maturity M at church, and this includes the 120 or so growth group leaders across church. And uh, many of these men and women have stepped into this role completely lacking confidence in their Bible knowledge or leadership skills or pastoral ability. Uh, Joe Clark and Jenny uh, and myself and others on the team have this conversation constantly. You know, we actually think their Bible knowledge and leadership and pastoral ability is pretty good, but their story is often nervousness about failure or unavoidable comparisons with more gifted people. 
or it's about self-doubt. Yet because it is God who gives the growth, our group leaders have been convinced that it is worth doing and so have volunteered for this ministry. And they've kind of built a different story based on confidence in God rather than themselves. And so they head out into the field with their little watering can, trusting in God to give the growth. And I believe we do see people grow in our groups. Maybe you are one of the people who have grown. So I want to ask you now, are you holding back from beginning in ministry or extending your ministry because of a lack of confidence? Or do you have doubts about your Bible knowledge or leadership ability or pastoral skills? Now, these are things worth talking through and growing in and so on, but I want to encourage you to change your story. I want to encourage you to head into the field. God is good and powerful, and He's the one we depend on, not ourselves. So I challenge you to give it a go. Take on that new and stretching ministry. Well, just to sum up then, we, today we have seen just how silly it is for churches to divide over leaders. The whole Christian faith is built on the message of a leader nailed to a cross. The real power is the Spirit of God working through the gospel message of Christ crucified. So jealousy and divisions, they're not signs of sophistication and wisdom, they're just signs of immaturity and worldliness. And thankfully that's not something we see here, but we can certainly take note of the warning. And what are our Christian leaders? Are they wise and powerful people? Experts, executives, entertainers? No, no, they are simply farm labourers working in God's field. And it is God who ultimately gives the growth. So let's continue to be a church that is humble and unified and encouraging to our leaders. Let's be a church who, that loves growth and let's continue to welcome in more and more people. So there's plenty to pray for there, so please join me in prayer. Lord God, you are the owner of this field and we praise you that you have given growth over the years. Thank you for the unity in our church. Thank you that we have new life now, not because of dynamic leadership, but because our Messiah, Jesus Christ, was crucified for us. He took away our sins and brought forgiveness and hope. Thank you that he lives and reigns now. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who equips us to receive the word and change and grow. Help us to repent of any jealousy or quarreling that might be in our hearts. Help us to encourage our leaders as they teach the Bible. Help us to persevere in our own ministries or start out in ministry or extend our ministry, trusting not in our own ability but in your power. Please grow our church beyond what we are comfortable with for the sake of people's salvation and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.